What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Wednesday, August 16th, 2023. Matthew Ho joins us now. Matt, always a pleasure, my dear friend. Thank you uh, for coming back on the show. Uh, Matt, are you uh, at all surprised or taken aback that the Ukrainian spring offensive uh, went nowhere and its, uh, its offspring, the summer offensive, went nowhere as well? Uh, thanks for having me back, Judge. And uh, yeah, no, I, I'm not surprised. I, a lot of commentators are not surprised. I think you're not. Most of your audience uh, is is likely not as well. Um, just the uh, everything about it was doomed to failure. Just the size of the two forces when you compare them, the fact that the Russians took six months to dig in, uh, uh, prepare fortifications. This was their plan. So you played right into the Russians' plan, as well as to just the fact that the Ukrainians did not have the necessary uh, equipment needed. Uh, I was reading today where they're interviewing a Ukrainian uh, brigade uh, commander who says he has 30 uh, engineers in his unit. Uh, you know, doctrinally, he should have several hundred uh, to mm. be able to breach any type of, of fortifications like the Russians have. And then, of is course, that, they never had the air because, support or the artillery. Is that because of poor military planning or because people are dead? I, I think it's probably a mixture of both, a mixture of both. Uh, I think the Ukrainian army was not meant to be fighting this war. I, I don't think it was ever planned for the Ukrainian army to ever fight a war for longer than a couple of weeks. Certainly go back 16, 17 months, everyone, all the, the bright people on this, all the people on CNN and in the Wall Street Journal, all the experts were saying how it would be over so quick. And to remember, you had many Americans and Brits and people in Brussels who wanted to see uh, another Afghanistan happened. No lesser figure than the former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said such a thing, you know, suck the Russians in, bog them down, give them another Afghanistan. So expend Ukrainian lives, expend Ukraine, the country, expend their environment, their resources, their infrastructure in a trap for Russia. It hasn't gone that way, but it's gone in another way that you've had the same type of mindset, that same type of maniacal uh, desire right. for blood right. other than our own to be shed to try and somehow bring down the Russian uh, government by catching them in this trap in Ukraine. And then that would bring about exhaustion and stress on the Russian uh, economy, on the Russian people that would precipitate 
Russian regime change. And of course, the, we're not seeing do, anything near that. Do the neocons from Hillary Clinton to uh, Victoria Nuland to Tony Blinken uh, to um, uh, Jake Sullivan, I guess you got to put the president to the extent he thinks about this stuff in the group, but do the neocons, did they think that they could use Ukraine as a battering ram with which to weaken Russia and drive Vladimir Putin from office. Did they really think that? I, I really do think they believe that. I, I really think that they have. Did they done. not have? Did they not have available any intel showing them how powerful and well equipped the Russian military and well managed the Russian military is? Well, I think anyone who's a, a casual observer of American military intelligence history for the last decades going back uh, to the Korean War, say, we'll know that American intelligence estimates are often wildly off. And it also depends upon, even if they are accurate, it's so become so politicized. And I'm sure you've talked about this with our friend Ray McGovern over and over again, right? Yes. How politicized intelligence is. So what is even reaching the desk of the president uh, may be something that doesn't even resemble what the uh, Central Intelligence Agency, what the Defense Intelligence Agency, what the uh, State Department's INR, you know, all the various uh, uh, intelligence organizations we have even put together because there's such a process where it can be manipulated to make sure that it adheres to the narrative. But then, you know, as well, if you go and you look back at, say, the Discord leaks, uh, which were leaked by uh, uh, the young uh, Air Guardsman from Massachusetts, uh, several months ago. Uh, and you look at that and you see what the information being given to Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And you look at that and you, you see what our intelligence community was telling the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff about uh, Russian military strength. You go through those documents yourself and you find that it's incoherent. It doesn't make sense. One slide says one thing, another slide says another. And then, of course, you have on the slides an asterisk, a caveat, that says we get this information from the Ukrainians. We don't trust it. And we're going to try and get our own information. But that was what a is, year into Russia's invasion. So do we know how much money the American government has given to Ukraine or how not not money, the, the value, the cost of the equipment uh, the Congress uh, back when the uh, Democrats uh, ran the House under Mrs. Pelosi? enacted legislation that gave President Biden a $113 billion blank check. Do we have any way of knowing how much of that he has spent? And then I'm going to ask you about the quality of what we sent over there, which, which is deducted from the $113 billion. So do we know how much of that $113 billion remains? Or is this not a number that the public can put its, its hands on? It's a very difficult number to get your hands on. It really is. Uh, we have spent roughly about, uh, that I have seen, about $90 billion worth of that $113. Uh, and that may be less. And you've got to remember, too, that $113 billion was not all military assistance. Uh, much of it, a lot of it, was economic assistance. We pay for the pensions of the Ukrainian government. We pay for the salaries of the Ukrainian government. We pay for the salaries of the Ukrainian army. So anyone who says this is not we a pay for war. the salaries of the Ukrainian army, I guess we're also yeah. paying for and therefore controlling right. the Ukrainian intelligence of, uh, services as well. They're spies. Right. Although we have a, I don't even I don't think the Ukrainian government has control over their intelligence service. And we certainly don't. It seems that we have a very frustrating relationship from, say, uh, our people in Langley or, or 
uh, uh, you know, a DIA uh, would like to see that it's, it's not nearly the type of relationship that the United States had with the Iraqi or the Afghan uh, intelligence and security services. I mean, with the Afghan intelligence service, the NDS, the U.S. really controlled that. And, you know, it was an arm of the CIA in so many right, ways, right, not right. the same type of relationship with the Ukrainian security services. And there's a lot of doubt as to how much control uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has over his security and intelligence services. And I okay. think that if you anywhere you would look to see where is power within Ukraine, you would find it, I think, in those Ukraine in, in the security services to a greater deal than you would see it, say, in the armed forces. Okay, uh, I'm going to run a clip from uh, Russian Defense Minister Shoigu. Um, it, it requires that I read the translation. He's speaking kind of quickly, so I'm going to do my best to get all of the words uh, in. You'll you'll see the subtitles, and anybody watching us will see the subtitles. I'm going to uh, read the subtitles for the benefit of our friends that are um, in, enjoying judging freedom uh, audio only, and then I'm going to ask you. Uh, some questions about what he says. Here he is just the other day. In real life scenarios, our weapons show reliability and effectiveness. At the same time, the much hyped Western weaponry has shown itself to be far from perfect. You can check for yourself at the exhibition of the weapons captured in Ukraine. Despite the comprehensive assistance of the West, the armed forces of Ukraine fail. An example of this is the publicized strategic counteroffensive, the skillful actions of the personnel of the Russian armed forces, their coherence and the high level of training make it possible to respond flexibly to the implementation by Kiev of its plans of its Western curators. Preliminary results of combat actions show that Ukraine's military resources are exhausted. So he's making two points, Matt. One is that the equipment we've given them is subpar. I want you to comment that on that in a second. The second is that the Ukraine military is exhausted. Start, please, first with, this is the defense minister of Russia. This is the equivalent of, of Lloyd Austin, the secretary of defense in the United States, claiming that what we're sending them is subpar, not as good as what the Russians are using against them. Agree or disagree? I think it's a mix. It's a mix. There's some propaganda in there. Uh, a bunch of months ago or, or, or late last year, the Ukrainians captured the newest uh, tank the Russians are using in combat, the T-90M. And, you know, the same type of propaganda. This tank isn't very good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there's also some truth in it because we have sent our oldest equipment. Uh, certainly, you've seen that with our European partners where they have emptied out their stocks. They've given their oldest tanks, their oldest aircraft. Uh, I think it was Slovakia and Poland gave MiG-29s that they had to, they had to cannibalize uh, uh, their own aircraft in order to make those MiG-29s fly. So they said they gave 30 MiG-29s. The Ukrainians only really got 15 because you had to take parts from 15 to make the other 15 work kind of thing, right? So what you have, though, is one of the reasons for this is you don't want these weapons being captured. This uh, is why the Americans have been so reluctant, say, to provide the Abrams tank to Ukraine. Now the first six Abrams tanks out of 40 or so are arriving in Ukraine. They are old M1A1 models that go back to, I believe, they predate the Persian Gulf War. The reason why we are not giving 
uh, Ukrainians are newer tanks, our best tanks, is to, in my opinion, simply because we don't want them captured. Because the armor on the Abrams is a very closely guarded secret. Right. So we don't want the Russians to understand how our armor works because. All right. So they would capture the tank and reverse engineer the armor. Right. And we've already seen that happen with, say, the HIMARS rockets, which are the rockets that shoot about 50 miles. They're GPS guided. The Russians, of course, figured out how to jam the GPS. So this is one of the reasons why the United States has been so reluctant to give the Atakams missile, which we hear so much about, which is a 200 mile range, because we don't want the Russians to figure out how to defeat those missiles. It's not just the Russians. We also believe, rightly, that whatever information the Russians have, they're going to give to the Chinese. And so that's mm. who the Americans are really so concerned about are fighting the Chinese. And so we don't want the Chinese to know anything about our weapons that they could learn by Ukrainians losing them to the Russians. Got it. OK, so to Defense Minister Shoigu's second point that the Ukrainian military is exhausted, we know uh, that the Russians have three rungs of defenses to prevent the Ukrainian military from going into eastern Ukraine. We know the Ukrainian military has not even approached, much less breached, the first of those three rungs. Is Defense Minister Shoigu's contention that the Ukrainian military is exhausted propaganda or credible or something else? I think it's rapidly approaching that point, uh, which is something of credibility of credibility. I, I really think it is. Um, I think the, the Ukrainians with this uh, offensive were incredibly reckless, incredibly stupid. You know, we've talked about before, Judge, this was political theater. So this great waste of human life was all done as a spectacle. Right. To try and prove a point to the West, to prove a point to the American people, to shore up support for the Ukrainians at the NATO summit, to try and make these uh, peace conferences that the West has held in Copenhagen and then just recently in Saudi Arabia to try and make them something. And so you have this offensive to show that this fight is worth it. This war is worth it. The Ukrainians, with the grit that they have, they can win. And you see this. You see this in American uh, media. You see this in Correct. the op-eds, right? Correct. Where it's like, I don't know if they see it anymore, but you certainly saw it for the first 16 months of the war. Right. And, and so I think what you saw with this offensive is that these brigades that were trained and the training was minimal. Who, the people who thought that somehow you're going to send uh, Ukrainian soldiers to learn how to use these tanks and fighting vehicles and artillery and rockets together and train them in eight weeks. You know, I mean, just to create a rifleman in the U.S. Marine Corps, you spend over a year of training or close to a year of training before that kid goes to to. Uh, before that kid goes to, to his unit. I mean, that's just to create an infantryman, right? I mean, mm. and so let alone you're thinking you're going to create this uh, military that's capable of conducting these com combined arms operations, which are very complex in the manner of weeks. You know, you're kidding yourselves. And they were kid kidding everybody else. And so I think what they did, though, was where they had this reserve of maybe 10 brigades or so that they have committed into this offensive, rather than using that to strengthen their defense and then be able to put themselves in a position where maybe they can negotiate a better settlement, they've exhausted themselves. They've used okay. up that reserve. And this is a great. And now, of course, the, how much did they use up? And right. I've not been no. bullish, as you know, on the Russian army, not certainly not like Colonel McGregor. But McGregor may be right, and I might be completely wrong here in a sen sense of the ability for a Russian uh, uh, offensive that would cause the Ukrainian army collapse because the Ukrainians have wasted so much. I mean, all these lives that have just been ruined. Okay.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, add to this, and I think you'll agree with me from your military experience and your knowledge of what's going on there. Ukraine is the most mined country Mm. in the world as we speak. How much, how much longer can this last? Active, daily, military engagement, Russian army versus Ukraine army. Well, I got to remember the mines go both ways, right? So this, this would preclude and make a Russian offensive very difficult as well. Uh, and certainly you saw that uh, in, say, the Bakhmut offensive, where the, uh, my understanding is one of the reasons that the Russians were so held up, why it seemed so slow, was because they encountered these Ukrainian minefields, made it very right. difficult. My, okay. my belief is that this is, is this a stalemate. It's turning into a stalemate, barring what I just said about a Ukrainian army collapse. You have a ton of money going into uh, the Ukrainian army, the Ukrainian economy. It will be propped up. It will become uh, the type of thing that we did with uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, where it can still stand. The house of cards can still function as long as that money is coming in. There's no fear of that money leaving. And of course, what we'll do here in the U.S. is we'll do something quite, uh, uh, you know, insidious and quite nefarious and quite more, you know, morally bankrupt, like tie aid to Maui, right, our national disaster aid to making sure the Ukrainian army gets yeah. its weapons, which is what the White House is doing, right? Perhaps I mean, so, but that's, not, that wouldn't, as reprehensible as that is, it wouldn't surprise me, wouldn't surprise me at all if that happens. I mean, let's face it. Maybe we'll get a little bit into politics, but I want to talk big picture in Ukraine. But I got to throw this question at, at you anyway. Joe Biden doesn't have an exit ramp. He does not have a publicly acceptable, politically palatable exit ramp from this mess, does that I can see. Do you no. agree? No, they, they, he doesn't. And this is the same judge. This is what happened in Afghanistan with with Obama is he came in office, the Taliban were willing to negotiate. How did I know that? Because it was all over Middle Eastern, Central Asian, South Asian newspapers at the time. The Taliban were saying it themselves. When I was in Afghanistan as a State Department officer, twice I met with Taliban interlocutors talking about negotiations. That was completely shut down. No one on the U.S. side wanted to hear it. We were going to surge in Afghanistan. We were going to be victorious. We were going to get a military victory for the Pentagon. We were going to show that Democratic president is a better commander in chief than a Republican president. All those types of things. What happens, though, when you don't win? What happens when you put a quarter million man army into Afghanistan, right? 100,000 American troops, 40,000 NATO troops, 100,000 contractors, and you don't win? particularly when you rebuff the efforts of the other side to negotiate. Right. What right, is that other right. side? And that's what happened here in, in Ukraine. I mean, you had the opportunity to negotiate with the Russians before the Russian invasion. 
You then had negotiations that were occurring between the Ukrainian government and the Russian government, first in Belarus and then in Turkey, that produced a draft 15-point peace plan that the United States and the UK in particular pulled the Ukrainians out of. No, no, don't worry. We're going to give you everything you need to win. The Russians, Russia's a paper tiger. Remember, it's just like it's just a a, a, a a gas station that's a country, all that type of, of vapid nonsense. How and right? How corrupt? How corrupt is the gas station that's a country? How corrupt is Ukraine? Is well, it as corrupt yeah. as we are told it is? The most corrupt nation in the Western world? Yet, according to Transparency, Transparency International, it's about 145 out of 190 in terms of corruption. Uh, it is a very corrupt country. Uh, we've known this for quite a long time. We have to remember that in the fall of 2021, so before the Russian invasion, uh, the Paradise Papers were released, which showed that President Zelensky had uh, you know, more than a billion dollars in hidden offshore accounts, right? I mean, so the corruption went right to the top. It's well documented and you see it in it. But again, you have the parallel to the Iraq and the Afghan wars where we were propping up these incredibly corrupt countries. And this is a danger, the real danger of certainly the other. There's, there's moral dangers, there's uh, aspects of governance, of civil institutions, what it means for a country to be corrupt, how it affects the people. But in a sense of warfare, you have a corrupt country like like Iraq, Afghanistan, Ukraine. You cannot expect anything. From your military. So what I happens guess, in 20, right? I guess uh, Speaker McCarthy and Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer are aware of this corruption because, as you know, because you and I bl both blasted this on this show and elsewhere, uh, the Republicans in the House were unable to vote on Congressman Massey's proposal to impose an inspector general over there right. so we would know where the cash is going. And the same thing, they were, the Republicans and Democrats in the Senate couldn't vote on Senator Rand Paul's identical proposal for an inspector general. Here's uh, President Zelensky bemoaning corruption. You tell me if this is credible. Okay. There are 112 criminal proceedings against officials of the territorial recruitment centers. 33 suspects, regional, city, and district military commissars, employees of the military medical commissions, abuses in different regions. Some took cash, some took cryptocurrency. That's the only difference. The cynicism is the same everywhere. Illicit enrichment, legalization of illegally obtained funds, illegal benefit, illegal transportation of persons liable for military service across the border. Our decisions are the following. We are dismissing all regional military commissars. Is it a pinprick towards uh, get eliminating corruption? Is it just propaganda for his people? Uh, is he getting a handle on the on the problem or is this just blather? I think uh, it's, it's similar to if you've got a tree that's completely rotted out on the inside and you're running around pruning it, pruning its uh, its its branches. Um, I mean, what you have here in that case, if people aren't familiar with it, uh, the entire uh, leadership of the Ukrainian recruiting uh, service, the people responsible for bringing people into the military, was right. dismissed, fired, brought up on charges uh, because it was so corrupt. And what you have then, that's just one example, you have overall system that how can that system stand? And again, back to Iraq and Afghanistan, you saw the same thing happen. You, you built this corrupt system. Uh, what happens in 2014 when the Islamic State threatens the Iraqi government, the Iraqi army folds. Why? Because the Iraqi army wasn't an army. It was a business, 
right? It was a speculation. It was a racket. You have maybe the same with the Ukrainian army. If you have this where you have now sown such distrust, such uh, distaste for the Ukrainian army, because you can get out of it if you have enough money. And if you don't, you're going on the front lines. And as some reports will see, you'll be dead in a day or two. How, know, how, are, of- how close are we, we, I guess, the U.S. or, or, or Russia to the use of n- nuclear weapons? In Ukraine. Oh, uh, I think the Russians have warned about it several times. And I think you're a complete fool if you don't take it seriously. I'll also say that the United States does not have a no first use policy either. And that the United States has uh, usable nuclear weapons. So the smallest our, the smallest bomb we could drop, the B-61, is has can be dialed back to 0.2 kilotons. The, by example, the Hiroshima bomb was 15 kilotons, right? So you can see, and the Russians have similar types of, of weaponry. You can see how the argument is made that, look, it's barely a fraction of what was done to Hiroshima. So we can use this, and then that will send the warning. I mean, this is when they start talking about usable nuclear weapons and this idea of escalating to de-escalate. Uh, and, of course, neither side having a no-first-use policy. Only China at this point has a real no-first-use policy, which they're probably going to end up jettisoning. But take a take a look at this um, mini documentary, if you will. I don't even remember who produced it, but the the name of it is on there, and we'll certainly give them uh, credit for it. Uh, it's kind of terrifying, showing uh, the enormous amount of death and destruction that would be caused by these uh, first uses. Watch this. Declassified mode activated. For context, population of nations engaged at war. NATO member states have 944 million people. The Russian Federation has 145 million people. Stage 1, nuclear war. Elapsed time. 1 hour, 12 hours. 13 hours. 14 hours. 15 hours. 16 hours. 24 hours. Total global casualties at 178 million people. Losses of nations engaged at war. NATO member states have lost 9.1% of their total population. The Russian Federation has lost 62.9% of its total population. Nuclear fallout. Elapsed time. Three days. Six days. Nine days. Twelve days. Fifteen days. 30 days. Maximum radiation levels recorded, shown by degrees of latitude, in REM units. Total global casualties at 186 million people. Stage 3, nuclear winter. 7 months. 8 months. 9 months. 10 months. Minimum temperature recorded, shown by degrees of latitude, in Celsius degrees. Total global casualties at 548 million people. End of the simulation. Why don't we have a no first use policy, Matt? Because of, because, of, because of what Harry Truman did in 1945 as horrific and murderous and immoral and catastrophic and un- militarily unnecessary as that was? Because we, we're an empire and we have a military industrial complex and we have a foreign policy establishment that is founded on two principles, one of megalomania and the other on profit. 
Uh, and that makes it so that you have people who are in charge of these things having the most maximalist position possible. Recall that during the Cold War, going back into the 60s, say, uh, the estimates that, you know, say Dan Ellsberg revealed in his book, The Doomsday Machine, because Dan Ellsberg, the late great Dan Ellsberg, was a nuclear war planner, was that the American military leadership saw the loss of tens of millions of Americans in a nuclear war as something that was sustainable, as something that was doable. Right. That that mm. is something that we can we can absorb that we're going to kill more of them. We'll be able to still function. They won't be. If you take that video you just showed, which is a terrific video, and you see that the casualties on the first day where nine percent of U.S. and NATO population is killed, but 62 percent of the Russian population is killed. You have a lot of generals and admirals who are very simple in their thinking who would say that means we win. Right. And then that promulgates it all and pushes it. Forward. American, American generals and admirals. American generals. Now, and to be fair, the Russians have their share and the Chinese will as well, because when you have this type of confrontation, again, this type of maximalist thinking, this is what you get. These are the people who be, who get put in charge. Uh, well, I'll say also about that. The one thing I will criticize that video for, Judge, is that it stops at 10 months. And everything we know about nuclear winter is that it goes on for five years, right? Right. right. Years, and right. so, so you law. can you can you can blame me for that because okay. the uh, producer uh, Chris, who came up with it, had, we had a longer version, but I didn't want it to be any longer, so I asked him to edit it, and he did a a, a good job of uh, doing that. Um, yeah, because I want to show you. I was going to say, you go with nuclear winter, right? And the idea being is that because of the soot that's in the atmosphere. And right. the cooling and the blocking the sun, we can't grow food for years and years. Our animals all die. And so that's the whole thing about the end state of a nuclear war is we get to watch our children starve. As, that's terrifying, as terrifying as this is, to me, the most memorable thing that you said, which requires a tremendous amount of courage, you're an ex-Marine. You're still a Marine. There is no such thing as an ex-Marine. I know the, the culture. Um is that we are an empire. You're right. We are an empire uh, that thinks that we are the exceptional country and that we can do what nobody else can. Here's a very savvy uh, mini little talk from the Russian president. By pumping billions of dollars into the neo-Nazi regime, supplying it with equipment and weapons, sending their military advisors and mercenaries, everything is being done to ignite the conflict even more, to draw other states into it. Hotbeds of tension are also smoldering in other regions of the world, and although the security challenges in each of them have their own characteristics, all of them are generated by geopolitical adventures, selfish neo-colonial actions of the West. NATO member countries continue to build up and modernize their offensive capabilities and make attempts to transfer a military confrontation to outer space into the information space. They use military and non-military means of pressure. And all this is happening amid the destruction of the arms control system. The United States seeks, among other things, to adjust the system of interstate interaction. And that has developed in the Asia-Pacific region. Sounds pretty rational to me. 
Yeah, it, it, it is. a What we're living in here, Judge, and what we're seeing, particularly where President Putin talks about all these conflicts and potential conflicts around the world, that's the re, it's a reality of the empire's making. You know, when you go abroad looking for tigers, when you go abroad looking for dragons, you're inevitably going to find them because you're going to be barging into people's homes. Be, you know, this is the case of the Chinese. I mean, I graduated college in 1995. Since then, we have been sailing our aircraft carriers up to their coastline, humiliating them. And they have said continuously for the last 25 or so years, if you continue to do this, we will respond. I mean, this you, is the whole uh, idea that people will push back. Uh, you're, you're very articulate and very courageous, Matt. You, you came very close to quoting uh, the second president of the United States, John Adams, who, as you know, said, our, our friend, uh, Andrew Basevich, I'm sure, has this emblazoned on his office. Uh, if you go about the world searching for monsters to slay, right. there will be no end to your search. Correct. Absolutely correct. And the idea that you're not going to have some type of reaction, some type of pushback uh, is just preposterous. It's just it boggles the mind that we have people who can forego that type of rational thought. But certainly that's what we do. That that's our whole government is filled with. We could talk about all other kinds of things that our government right. is doing. But certainly with our militarized foreign policy, what did we expect? Why did we not uh, expect these countries to push back. And we could see that, whether it be, say, what's happening in West Africa now, what's happening with, with China, constantly the tensions in Iran. I just read a quote the other day from an Iranian naval commander regarding this whole uh, neo-tanker war we're seeing now in the Persian Gulf. And now the United States, as it, which is beyond idiotic, maybe putting Marines on other nations' tankers. I think it's a way to induce a conflict between the U.S. and Iran. But an Iranian naval commander said, look, you keep pushing us. What do you expect us to do? We're going to push back. Right. And, and so the fact that that type of just reasonable, rational, logical deducement of actions cause consequences is lost upon our leaders is something that really should scare the hell out of us. Matthew, well, always a pleasure, my dear friend. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. Uh, the, the viewers of the show very much enjoy your work. We'll see you again soon. All right. Thanks so much, Judge. Of course. If you like what you saw, like and subscribe. Tell a friend. Tell your relatives. We're at 183,000 plus subscribers. Our goal is 200,000 by Labor Day. That's only two and a half weeks away. Uh, 20 minutes from now, 4.30 Eastern, Jacob Hornberger will make his case on why the CIA, why he believes the CIA was involved in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Judge the Paul Tanner for judging freedom, where, as you know, we're looking out for your liberty.